HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome pastry chef Lashita Perry. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Lashita about her journey from CCAP trainee to beating top chefs in Food Network competition. And we'll hear Lashita's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We've talked about how much Julia valued chefs as teachers and sources of inspiration. While Julia spent much of her time in France learning from chefs, as her career developed, she became the teacher. Beyond teaching home cooks, Julia also mentored a wide swath of chefs, many of them women. Julia advocated strongly and widely for young people to get professional culinary training and supported the expansion of cooking schools in America. This is something we take for granted today, but becoming a chef was not a path to prestige when Julia began advocating for it. For example, she worked with Chef Jacques Pepin to start Boston University's now wide-ranging culinary arts program. But for young people to know they want to become a chef or a culinary professional, they have to know that career path exists. This is something Julia also supported, as does the foundation today. CCAP, which stands for Careers Through the Culinary Arts Program, is a long-standing recipient of grants from the foundation. CCAP reaches students before they graduate high school to introduce them to career opportunities in the culinary arts. 
They offer young people culinary training, mentors, work experience in professional kitchens, and then provide scholarships for graduates to attend culinary school. Moreover, CCAP specifically aims to help students from underprivileged backgrounds learn life skills and self-belief. Someone who can speak to CCAP's value personally is Chef Lashita Perry. Lashita is a pastry chef and the founder and owner of Queen of Flavor, a business which specializes in helping clients develop dessert recipes and dessert menus. After completing CCAP's program in Philadelphia, Lashita was awarded a full scholarship to Johnson & Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island. By the way, the foundation also supports culinary arts scholarships at Johnson & Wales. After earning her degree, Lashita chose a career in hospitality with Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, rising to executive pastry chef at the Four Seasons in Atlanta, before switching to corporate dining, rising again again, to become the executive pastry chef for LinkedIn's offices. You may recognize her from her success in several Food Network cooking competitions, beginning with winning season two of Sweet Genius in 2012. In 2018, she was a finalist on season two of Food Network's Best Baker in America, where she picked up the moniker Queen of Flavor. Her latest trophy is from 2021, when she beat Bobby Flay. She's the first CCAP female alumna to be featured on a multi-episode reality cooking series. Chef Lashita joins us today to tell us more about CCAP and to share her passion for being a pastry chef. Welcome to the podcast, Lashita. Hi, thanks for having me, Todd. Well, we're so happy you could join us. And I, I want to start where it all, all began, at least career-wise, for you. And can you tell us about participating in CCAP and how, how it kind of works in, in not just like nice description, but like what it feels like to, to join it and what you do during the program? Yes, absolutely. Um, I actually had a very early start. Um, and I'll start by saying I never wanted to be a chef, right? <laughs> I know people are really surprised when I say that, but it's not like I was born to be a pastry chef. It was actually a, an opportunity that was presented to me in high school because we were broken into small learning communities and I was in the law and government aspect of it. Um, but I realized that um, not enough students were receiving the financial aid or the scholarships to become a lawyer or to, to be in law and government. So um, I went to my teachers. I explained to them, you know, I need to get into college. Like, I wanted to be the first person in my family to do that. At the same time, my mom was ill and I, I just knew I had to get into school. Um, so they were like, well, have you ever thought about cooking? And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> um, no, I love to eat, though. So they're <laughs> like, well, let me introduce you to um, our culinary teacher. And mind you, it's still in the same school, but like I never ventured over into that um, segment of the school because I knew that's where the culinary was and I was long government. But long story short, they introduced me to her and um, that's Wilma Stephenson, who, uh, excuse me, Miss Wilma Stephenson, who I still stay in touch with to this very, very day. You know, over 20 years later, she still plays a pivotal role in my life. But um, her first question was, what is your GPA? What's your GPA? And I'm like, 
what does that have to do with cooking? Because back then, uh, culinary, it wasn't really a true career path, um, especially, you know, I was lined up to be the valedictorian of my graduating class. And most valedictorians, they don't go to culinary school. You know, they're lawyers, they're doctors. That was like almost a chosen career path for me. But to know that that was still important to her, even if I became a chef, I knew that I wanted to to work with this lady. And she took me under her wing. She introduced me to CCAP and, and the rest is history from there. <laughs> And w- once you got into the program, so like you mentioned, you were, and I think you ended up staying the valedictorian of your high school class. Did you change your coursework altogether, or this is something you did kind of in addition? How does CCAP work when you actually join the program? When you're doing the program, you still are obligated to commit uh, to complete uh, any high school requirements. That's extracurricular activities. It, it wasn't like I just stopped everything I was doing and began cooking. I still had tons of other obligations to do. However, my courses were not solely focused on long government. Like we used to do mock trials to get people out of detention. You know, I stopped doing that. However, all of my academics and um, AP classes, I still took those on. So um, it was on top of those activities. Um, We would go in and practice for hours and hours on tournée and potatoes, our omelets, just basic knife skills. And she would even give us potatoes to take home during the holiday break and practice those tournées as well. So it was pretty, um, I I don't really want to say intense, but it was definitely um, preparing you for, you know, the Super Bowl, if you will. Like we practice and practice because, mind you, I made this decision um, during my sophomore year of high school. So I went into CCAP at the beginning of my junior year. So I really had to change courses to some of the schools I was applying for. I was applying for more schools that I knew who had a business program and a culinary program because I didn't want to attend um, strictly a culinary school. I wanted to make sure I had something to fall back on, if you will. I see. And then at the time that you did CCAP, did they have the externships where you worked in a professional restaurant kitchen like during the summer or was it all at that time or at least at your high school at at school? It was mainly at school for me. I believe they um, integrated that part a little later on, Um, but I don't no, actually, I did. I went to a community college of Philadelphia, and I took some culinary classes there. So, yeah, they definitely had those opportunities. I'm sorry, you're, you're making me think back like 20 years ago. <laughs> no, no, it's all right. Well, no, but that's important to understand, too, right? So some of what the program has evolved quite a bit since you started in it into how it operates today. And Correct. obviously, it had to pivot during the pandemic as well and is getting back to to what it was once doing. Um, And so what point during CCAP or was it not until you went to Johnson and Wales that you um, kind of discovered this passion for pastry and desserts? 
It was exactly when I went to Johnson and Wells because while in high school, um, it was very important for us to learn both savory and pastry. So I remember one of the first dishes we made in high school as a what sixteen, seventeen year old was like chili and sea bass and quail wrapped in prosciutto, stuffed with fig, like pronouncing foods that. You know, I never even had a day in my life or didn't even know existed. So we were definitely a little more savory driven while in high school. However, I re recall making like a basil lemon tart with Mrs. Stephenson and um, we sold cookies and did like cinnamon rolls. But it wasn't until I um, started at Johnson & Wells that I really honed in on the pastry aspect However, I did double major for about one trimester just to make sure I wanted to do pastry. And when it was time to butcher a pig, I realized that pastry was for me because I was not butchering a pig or any animal. <laughs> it was not for me. <laughs> not for me. And, and so does that mean then you decided fairly early at Johnson Wells you were going to do pastry and, and you didn't – you haven't sort of done – the savory training or or you did at some point? Um, correct. It was during my first, my freshman year at Johnson Wells. Um, I did double major for about a trimester and then I decided to just do strictly bacon and pastry with a concentration and career writing. And out of the group that you went or did CCAP with in Philadelphia, how many of them went on to actually either, I mean, I'm not asking you to statistically, just anecdotally, like, mm -hmm. were you one of the few ended up getting a full scholarship and going to professional culinary school or did several or did it, what would you, what does your memory <laughs> tell you? Uh, my memory tells me that only one student was given or was awarded a full tuition scholarship every year. There were some who received um, a partial tuition scholarship or, you know, um, scholarship monies toward uh, education. But during my graduating class, I'll never forget that luncheon because I was sitting at the table watching these students get these awards. And I just remember looking at um, Mrs. Stephenson at that time and not from a place coming from entitlement, like, hey, I better receive an award. But it was literally, they even said it, okay, this is going to, going to be the last scholarship given of the day. And I'm like, what if that's not me? Well, what am I going to do? And lo and behold, they saved the the full tuition scholarship for last. And, and, and that was me. Wow. Life-changing, right? Oh, hands down. Hands down. <laughs> Well, what foresight that you had, actually, that you were concerned enough about what you were studying, that it wasn't going to, um, you weren't going to, not that it wasn't going to get you where you wanted to go, but that your chances of getting the full ride that you needed um, might not be there. And so once you got, because it sounds like as much of anything, you were just hedging your bets that you wanted to go to college, you knew that was important, and culinary was a more express or sure way to get there. Once you got to Johnson & Wales, did you think, well, I'm going to be a pastry chef and work on that? Or you were kind of like, well, I get my degree and I'll then see what happens. Um, I knew 
once I received the scholarship, I knew I wanted to stick in culinary, however, or and or hospitality. But CCAP, they made it clear to us, yes, they are a culinary driven nonprofit. However, they do help students get into the hospitality industry as well. So I understood that there were many opportunities besides me just being a chef. And I think CCAP did a really, really good job of, you know, letting us understand that by giving us different trips to hotels, not just restaurants as well. So I, that's why Johnson Wells was really important for me to get into because I knew they would expose me to the hospitality aspect as well and or business. So it, it was more like knowing I had other opportunities besides becoming a chef. Yeah, and I think it's important to also clarify that for CCAP, a, a, a number of people do the program and and don't go to culinary professional school, mm -hmm. but they can often go right into a kind of apprenticeship or work experience that you know is then in hospitality and Correct. starts them on a career. That's I would say relatively common as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like most um, hotels offer at MIT a manager and training program, which you know, requires you to shadow a chef for a month or so. I might be exaggerating, maybe more of a couple of weeks, but they force you to see the front of the house and the back of the house, which I think is really good because, you know, things change in life and sometimes we have to pivot and, and do other things. Well, and I think it's also to, to point out that one of the the flexible things that CCAP does is expose really young people to the potential of a career, even if they don't have the opportunity to go to university, either for financial or academic reasons, but they have a certain set of skills and training that are kind of instantly marketable in a way that's unusual coming out of high school. Yes, absolutely. They did a really good job um honing in on lifestyle skills you know what type of skill can you have that's not just technical more interpersonal skills that will land you any job right most of that is universal you know showing a good work ethic um being on time being compassionate all of those things spill into other careers as well so yes yeah, ccap was really really good with that knowing that not calling culinary is not going to be for everyone or definitely not in the long term. Um, I've seen that throughout my career. Not everyone wants to be a chef for the rest of their lives. So yeah, they were really, really good with that. All right. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more about what it takes to be a top pastry chef with Lashita Perry. Stay with us. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, 
the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back. We're talking to pastry chef, the queen of flavor herself, Lashita Perry. So, Lashita, I think people are familiar, most people are familiar with the pastry chef does in a restaurant, but you spent a large amount of your career so far on the corporate side. And so I thought it would be helpful to kind of talk about how does being an executive pastry chef for a big hotel or corporation, how does that differ or not differ from being a pastry chef in a, in a regular restaurant? Yes, there is a big difference. And I spent about a decade with Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, although I did leave um, for about three and a half years where I went to be the executive pastry chef with Bon Appetit Management Company. And the account that I was at was LinkedIn. So the biggest difference between a hotel and a restaurant is that restaurants actually close. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they close maybe on most Sundays and well, Mondays and for dinner service or lunch or afternoon tea, whatever the case may be, and even most holidays. However, a hotel is open 24 hours like it's non-stop so you're constantly on as an executive pastry chef or executive chef you have guests that are hungry throughout the day no matter what time it is you also have to oversee other aspects of that hotel for example the banquet service most hotels especially for seasons they have large banquet rooms where they can hold up to a couple hundred or even 800 and you put on a three a five course dinner or you might do more of a buffet style meal and that requires desserts and you can't forget your weddings most weddings are held in banquet spaces on top of the banquet spaces you have room service it's known as like in room dining nowadays but um so you have guests who check into their rooms and they would like a meal as well right so you have the restaurant you have banquets you have in-room dining and then some hotels they might have like a little coffee shop or a, a break room where guests can get a light snack whether that be some cookies or um, some donuts you the bakery is responsible for that. And then you throw on the resort aspect of it. You're talking about five restaurants, a couple banquet spaces, and even more. Um, and because they are very guest-facing, uh, the these hotels are always thinking of fun ways to entertain the guests outside of the box. You know, whether that's having a miniature pop-up somewhere and you're doing a s'mores night or offering cookie classes. So there's way more um, involvement uh at a hotel versus a restaurant. And so I'm getting a sense from you that you like a challenge because that sounds like full on and you've done it for quite a long time or did do it for quite a long time. What did, what did you, cause you didn't have to, you could have chosen to do something else. What, what made it attractive or kept you going at least as long for the amount of time that you did it? That's a really good question. It, so as a um, Johnson Well students, you were required to do an externship for both your associate and your bachelor's. And I was very fortunate to have done my associates with a um, bakery owner 
or a pastry shop owner outside of Philadelphia. And she was just so transparent with me, like just said, telling me, Lashita, you know, you're young right now. You're in the beginning of your career. Get as much as you can, you know, take advantage of every opportunity. But I was telling her, I don't know if I want to be in a bakery or if I want to do a freestanding restaurant. And she said, if you're unsure, go into hotels because you're going to be exposed to every aspect of baking and pastry, the wedding cakes, the donuts, the confections, the artisanal breads. They pretty much do it all at hotels. And I was like, you know what? You're right. She was like, do that for a couple years and then you can see what fits you best. And I did that for a couple years and I realized me being able to do a little bit every day is what fits me best because I would get bored if I had to do one station all the time. Like if I just, it, no, no disrespect to anyone else, but I, I just can't imagine making bagels all day. Yes, there's thousands of flavors you can make, but that just didn't motivate me or excite me. So I love the challenge of coming in and not knowing if I'm going to make ice cream that day or if I have to do a wedding cake. I just love just um, the constant thrill of making random things every day. <laughs> So we talked about that you've started a new business, Queen of Flavor. Do you are did you finally sort of get all the experience and exhaustion that you could take, or do you feel like you're on just kind of a pause before you go back to running uh, the the pastry operation at a big resort again? No, it's I want to say, and I I say I want to say because you just never know what, what can really happen in life, right? Um, especially due to the climate we're in now, but. I just was yearning for a different pace in my personal life. And at that time, when you're working at a hotel, we all know that you really don't have a personal life when you're working for these hotels. And it's just the way it is. It's the nature of the career. Um, you're just constantly working and you don't really get time to go to graduations or parties. You're just working. So Queen of Flavor was me saying, okay, Lashita, you've done this for X amount of years. How can you still enjoy what you do, but not burn yourself to the ground? So that's how Queen of Flavor came to be. And you've how I don't know how recently, but you're relatively recently relocated to Los Angeles. Is that right? I've been here almost three years. July will be oh, three okay. years. Yes. <laughs> and how and and is that is Queen of Flavor sort of uh, came out of moving to Los Angeles, or is that even more recent than 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 that? It's more recent than that. I actually transferred from Four Seasons Atlanta to Four Seasons Beverly Wilshire. Um, that was one of the reasons why I came to L.A. Um, but it was during that time I had lost my grandmother, I had lost my aunt. And when I was in high school, you know, my mom passed away and it was just um, it finally hit me. You know, it's one of those things we don't really talk about because I was young when she passed. So I, she literally passed like I want to say a couple days before I got the graduation or did I, I'm sorry, not the graduation that I was, no, she was alive when I got the scholarship. Oh my, I, I can't believe I'm, 
it, it shows to say that I didn't really think about it. It was more like, I just have to get through this. Like, okay, well, we'll have the funeral. And then like a, a couple weeks later was my graduation. So I never really dealt with that. And work was how I dealt with it. But then when you realize that you haven't dealt with it, it can hit you really hard. And I just knew I needed to to change things up a little bit, but still enjoy because I, I can't see myself not being a pastry chef it just has a different face right now you know and I, I have no regrets it was January 2020 when I started Queen of Flavor and it was um, a huge leap of faith um, even some people told me I was throwing my career away um, but it has opened so many other doors and, and made me realize that Yes, it was great to have all of these great um, experiences and and um, titles on my resume. But at the end of the day, you know, if we're not being fulfilled in our personal lives, then you really can't perform that great in your professional life, right? I know it sounds like common sense, but sometimes we just go with it because we think that's the right thing to do. But I'm starting queen of flavor is one of the biggest um accomplishments to date because i'm doing it on my own terms i'm i'm building on those connections that i made while i was working with these companies and and just really 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 having fun well that that is great to hear and uh yeah i'm just picturing you uh walking right out it sounds like you actually left the regent beverly wilshire after or the four seasons beverly wilshire when at a right time because January would have been right before everything started right. shutting down. Right. It was definitely a blessing in disguise and it kind of gave me a head start to create my own lane, if you will. And and then before you know it, this whole virtual world just opened up to us in, in so many different ways. And I'm just glad that I kind of had that head start and Queen of Flavor morphed into more than what I thought it would. And I'm, I'm just really, really fortunate. But I'm glad that I still have, you know, those connections with Four Seasons because that's part of my business as well, where, you know, I've, I do more like a guest chef for them or um, uh, an interim pastry chef for them. So it's not like I completely close the doors on hotels. I just will do it for a few weeks and then I'll come back home and do some virtual projects or in-person projects. And, and then, yeah, that's what I'm, that's where I'm going with this right now. <laughs> Sounds ideal. I can imagine. Cause what you <laughs> described before sounded quite grueling, especially to do for a really long time. So how did you also move from the, this sort of corporate hotel pastry chef environment to competing on television? How did that happen? Yeah, that is so the first time I competed was in 2012. Oh, my. That was a decade ago. OK, yeah, I was I <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I was working at Four Seasons Philadelphia at the time as uh, an entry-level cook, and, you know, I was on the PM a la carte service, so I would get home, like, at midnight, one in the morning sometimes, and I was just watching TV, trying to go to sleep, and Sweet Genius was on, but one of the contestants, she was actually a Johnson & Wells student, 
And I was just like, oh my God, I felt inspired to to do it. It was super random. <laughs> I don't know if it was out of exhaustion or what, but I was working part-time with um, the uh, pastry shop owner that I met while a freshman in, in college. We were still staying in touch. So I went to her and I told her about, you know, what I would like to do. And she said, that is so ironic because they reached out to me. I was like, excuse me. She was like, yeah, they reached out to me. She was like, if you want, let me make a phone call and, and see what we can do. And she was the one who, um, you know, truly motivated me and gave me that oomph to, to be on the show. So that's how it really started. Um, but, some time had passed, a good, what, six years had passed um, until I was on there again. And, and I just enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed, you know, making sure that people knew that there are African-American pastry chefs out there who are working in luxury hotels and corporate dining. And I knew that it was important for the culture, it was important for other young um chefs to see that whether male female black white asian or whatever to see that yeah we're in the industry working but we like to do tv once in a while too so um after best baker in america so many more television opportunities came up um i was a guest chef not a guest chef um uh I did a guest appearance for Netflix Ada Twist, which is an animation. And then I started doing digital content for Food Network Kitchen app. So, um, yeah, I just realized that I like being on camera and, and it's fun to watch it with my nieces and nephews to see how that makes them feel. Um, so, yeah, I like it. No, that that's that's terrific to hear, and, and I think everyone can mentally piece together the timing and the difference in attitudes and openness between 2012 and and 2018, which is actually a great segue. Um, I I partly wanted to ask you this question because you're an African American female chef, and you just pointed out that that is not something that is certainly rep or had been represented all that well, both in society on TV and because you're also a pastry chef. And we just had um, Claire Saffet, um, the dessert person uh, from who made her fame or became rose to popularity as a video host for Bon Appetit magazine and its test kitchen series mm -hmm. Gourmet Makes. I was curious if, and then we discussed with Claire, her being kind of embroiled in the turmoil that ensued at Bon Appetit magazine when um, kind of coincided between Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And I'm not sure if that's something you even paid attention to or aware of, but I was just curious your, your, your further point of view on that and whether you think we're kind of moving toward a more inclusive and equitable food world or the, the mountain is still very large to climb. I think we're moving towards having better conversations, but if actions are not being taken, then what are the conversations for? So I, I definitely think people know that it exists, but I don't think enough action is being done. And and I make sure, you know, I I I don't want to come off the wrong way when I say this, but a lot needs to be done. And this is coming from someone who's experienced it firsthand, who has worked in the industry for so many years. And, and to see that majority of the time, I'm the only African-American 
manager <laughs> combined with the front of the house and the back of the house. I'm not even talking about just the back of the house anymore because that's expected. But to even know that we don't have enough African-Americans or people of color that are guest facing is just as problematic as being in the back of the house, right? So I do think there's a lot more that, that needs to be done. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm struck by I was listening to a, another podcast about politics, and they were talking about the conversation about uh, President Biden's commitment to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And one of the commentators who was a, a very successful um, black political commentator and, and a think tank um, person was saying, you know, for her, now I'm speaking for her, but her, her, she was saying that in her experience, even as a very well-educated black woman in a position of uh, professional management, the number of times she was still asked to get coffee or somebody assumed a certain place that she had in the organization or society that she had to correct. And she was kind of pointing out every single one of these overly qualified candidates will have still been living that experience from time to time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been asked numerous times, can I speak to the, to the chef? And even when I told him I was the pastry chef, um, well, but that guy just walked by right there. And that guy happened to be a white guy with a chef jacket on. I was like, yeah, he's actually my employee. Um, do you want to speak to him? And it comes to the point now where I, I don't want to say I get sarcastic, but I, I make a joke out of it. I'm like, well, who are you looking for, Chef Boyardee? Or like, who are you looking for if, if I'm telling you it's me? Um, because I think, you know, I have to use a little reverse psychology to cope with it because it may seem small to other people, but just know that you go your entire career, you work really hard. Um, and people still don't believe you when you tell them. Or the other microaggression approach to it is, did you make that? No, you didn't make that, did you? You really made that? Almost like, well, if I'm the chef, you don't expect me to know how to make uh, a... Um, you know, a souffle or whatever the case may be, but people are always taken, not always, but some people are taken aback by the fact that an African-American, but and people say, well, how do you know it's about race? And I always say, then what else is, what else can it be? <laughs> if the only variable is that I am female and that I am black and I made this dessert, then what else can it be? Or if I'm around white chefs and they get called chef and I don't get called chef, why why don't you feel the need to call me chef? That's another one I deal with a lot. Like getting, you know, I don't force people to call me chef. I don't introduce myself as Chef Lashita, but I'll never forget I had um, an employee who um, I was like the assistant baker at that time, but they decided to promote me to pastry chef. And she came up to me and she said, well, I'm not going to call you chef. And I was like, but you call everyone else chef. And I just tell people, you don't have to call me chef, but if you became a doctor or a lawyer or a chef, would you want that title? So it's those little things that and I'm not even going to say little because it's not little to me. It's 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 really big to me, actually, because I know that I don't get the same respect as some of my white male counterparts. And it's something that I've noticed 
from the beginning of my career when I was an entry cook to even now that I have a, a pretty impressive resume and, and I still don't get that same respect. I constantly have to prove myself over and over. And then they'll say, oh, you, you know what? You're actually pretty good. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Like, Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. Golly. <laughs> well, no, I thank you very much for for sharing that because I, I think, as you said, it's not little, it's big. Do you think that the visibility part is really the the biggest key because it seems like as i said such a mountain to climb to change these such ingrained attitudes that like you said people aren't even aware of the 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 bias that they have that isn't maybe fully conscious even but i just was going to give you the floor again to say if they're you know what how do we, it just doesn't seem like something we can get there fast, but what are some ways that maybe we can express the process? Well, it, it's really going to be up to the leaders of the culinary and hospitality industry. You know, when the whole Black Lives Matter was, you know, Santa's right in our face, I, I've watched so many um, post about, yes, we stand in solitude, we're doing this, and we hear you, we see you. And then, you know, I speak to African Americans who are still working for these companies, and I'm like, what has changed since that post? And they were like, what are you, nothing? I was like, nothing? No, absolutely nothing. Even right now with Black History Month, people are putting up Black History Month signs. And I'm like, well, what are they actually doing during Black History Month? Oh, they told us to come up with some ideas for it because they're not creative. So it's just like people are taking, they're talking about, it, they're having these conversations, but there's no action in place. And I really think the Valronas of the world, the luxury hotels of the world, they really have to be the ones to drive this change if they want it to happen. You know, I'll give you an example where I knew, um, a black sous excuse me, a black cook was up for a promotion and a white and Hispanic. And they said, well, we're going to go with the one that speaks Spanish. And I'm like, is that really a fair determination? And they were like, well, yeah, we need someone that's bilingual. So I'm like, well, we have a human resource departments in most of these hotels. We even have learning managers. So why not offer some Spanish courses? If that's really, that's going to make the the playing field even if someone speaks Spanish or not. We have enough Spanish speaking people in the hotel. Why not hold small classes? You know, we're always having these trainings about sexual harassment. Let's integrate, you know, different languages then, even if it's very basic to say hello. I just feel as though there's things that the leaders can do on a small scale to help bring up everyone, not just black people, but just everyone. Um, so yeah. No, I think that that's really helpful and, and really great points. Thank you very much for sharing those with us. We're going to take a break and we'll be back and we'll hear Lashita's Julia moment. Woohoo! Yeah, I'm looking forward. <laughs> Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, 
I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Lashita, what's your Julia moment? My Julia moment is, I was a baby pretty much. Well, not a baby, but I was really big on watching PBS as a kid. It was on TV every day just about before I left out for school, whether it was Lamb Chop or Sesame Street or The Reading Rainbow. But I'll never forget when I realized there was a cooking aspect of it and I knew it wasn't, you know, a puppet or anything. I was like, this is an actual person cooking on television. And and that's my first memory of Julia Child is knowing that people can actually cook on TV. I just thought it was all about Big Bird and lamb chop. But I'm like, no, she's making lamb chops. So here we go. <laughs> oh, that's so fun and perfect timing because um, uh, Julia's... Uh, great nephew and one of the foundation trustees, Alex Prudhomme, has a new book out called Born Hungry, specifically a children's book about Julia's oh, story. look at that! <laughs> and with a perfect pink cover for pastry, young pastry chefs everywhere. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, that's awesome. And that is so needed. That is so good. I will look out for that and see if I can get it for some of my nieces and nephews. It should be widely available, so please do. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure, and thanks, everyone, for listening. For more from Chef Lashita, she's at Miss Chef Smiley Pants on Instagram, and her website is, of course, queenofflavor.com. For more about CCAP, it's at CCAP Inc. on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can also go to CCAPinc.org where you can buy a ticket to one of their annual benefits, which are legendary. Make sure you're following us. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Join us in Santa Barbara and throughout the county. May 20 to 22nd for the 2022 Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. Go to sbce.events to see the just announced lineup and register your interest in attending now. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.